invite you now to take up the word of God into your hands. Turn with me to the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, Romans chapter one. We began last Lord's Day. We have begun with the help of God to give ourselves to study this great book of Romans. Our prayer is that we might have a life transforming, a life changing encounter through the living word of God with the word who is our Lord Jesus Christ, the source of of all of that grace and mercy by which, in fact, we are chained. In Romans, we get to sit at the feet of the great Apostle Paul, who will illustrate and explain to us in these chapters the mysteries of the grace of God. This was the Apostle, of course, of the great mind. The most educated of all the apostles, coupled with special revelations by the Spirit of God, as he was called of God, Paul pulls back the veil, as it were, and we are invited to explore the deep things of God. And the more that we delve into the mystery of God's providence and his sovereignty, the more we may appreciate perhaps what another apostle had to say about this apostle. And I think he may have even been making reference to the book of Romans in particular. I refer you to the more uneducated great fisherman by the name of Peter, who himself a great apostle and taught of God himself, no less an apostle than Paul, Paul no less an apostle than Peter. But here's what Peter had to say, which probably most of us could identify with concerning the teaching and the writings of Paul. I'm just simply quoting from his second letter, Peter's second letter in chapter three, where he says this. Our beloved brother, Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things. Peter himself had been talking about the gospel and the grace of God. But then Peter says this. He he makes a commentary, I think, on the book of Romans. He said, in which these letters that Paul has written, Peter says, in which are some things hard to understand. And the danger, of course, is, Peter goes on to say, is that the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, they do so to their own destruction. So he writes to the believer, Peter does, and he says, you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest you fall from your own steadfastness. But these grand words grow. Christian, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
I think Peter is saying, and though sometimes hard to understand parts of Paul's letters are essential to this growth in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I guess what I'm saying to you folks who've signed on, and I said last week, fasten your seatbelts, we're going deep. Because the word of God goes deep. But it is worth the effort. Growth in grace and in the knowledge of God himself and of his son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, is essential. So that to him may be the greater glory. I think it was A.W. Tozer who wrote many years ago this single sentence, which is really packed so full of truth. That what you think, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And that's why it is so essential that our thinking be right. The Apostle Paul will encourage us much later in the letter that our very minds would be uh, transformed, that our minds would be renewed, which leads to the total transformation of our lives. So this is some of the blessing that awaits us. Now, sometimes it's just for our good that together as a church gathered, we read larger or more significant portions of Scripture. And I'm going to ask you to tune in and focus. And let's uh, share together as I read, you follow along, the first 17 verses of this important first chapter. Romans 1, 1 through 17. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, 
that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Pray with me. Father, I pray that the hard things for us to sometimes understand may, by the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit and your word as our text, with Christ himself, the master teacher, lead us into paths of righteousness, full of grace, for your own name's sake, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Coming back to the first verse, and I know that we looked at the first few verses last Lord's Day, but I want to just remind you and underscore again, we began with the clear understanding in these first verses that one is called to the gospel. And we spent uh, the better part of a whole sermon talking about this gracious call of God, first in the calling of an apostle to entrust the life-giving word and power of God in the gospel to the apostles who themselves form then the foundation for the church for all time with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. But also, as we have just read again those first verses, we understand that while you and I may not be called to the role of an apostle, all of us are called, it says in verse 7, as saints, That is, as set-apart ones, who we too, like Paul, become recipients of the grace and the peace that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The call of God, that was our focus last Lord's Day. Today I want to expand on that a little bit more with you and understand that the call of God is to the gospel of God. We have both phrases in these opening verses. The call of God, and then right there again in verse 1, he calls, he's called as an apostle, he says, set apart for the gospel of God. So we have this uh, uh, insight into the call of God, which is true for every true saint. All of the redeemed have been called, remember, out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the call is specific. It is to this power of God to change a life and to redeem a soul. It is a call to the gospel of God. And I want to make a footnote here uh, early on because it is likely that in every single message as we 
make our way through this great epistle, you will hear me time and time and time again, as you do in almost every sermon from this sacred desk, this word gospel, this word gospel. Now, we're all from various backgrounds. I've discovered that since coming to Florida some years ago. We're not necessarily an homogenous group of people when it comes to the things that we have experienced in the past and the faith, things that we've been taught, definitions we have learned. And and so the task is before us. And I think it's important. I think it's especially so in our day to stress this fact. The gospel is an all inclusive term the Bible uses to describe all the grace of God poured out into our lives, not just when we first heard it, not just when we first believed the good news, not when we first confessed our sins, to, uh, our sins to the Lord and asked him to come and be our personal savior. The gospel, I say to you, is a much bigger word that fills all the Christian life. And no matter how long, and some of you have long been a believer in Jesus Christ, there's not a day that dawns where you and I are not in need of fresh mercies from this same throne of grace. And I know that even after... 35 or more years of having the privilege of preaching the gospel in a very personal and practical way, if I may testify, I need to hear the gospel echo in my heart every single day. And one of the reasons for that is that we have been saved from our sins, but not in an altogether sense. We've been delivered from its power. Christ's death on the cross has delivered us from the penalty of sin, but we are waiting for the next great phase of this great salvation. And that's when you and I will finally be delivered from the very presence of sin. I need to hear every day, you know, I need to hear every day the gospel because I confess to you, I sin every day a lot in ways I'm not even aware of. And the gospel reminds me over and over and over again that my relationship to God is not rooted in my performance. It is founded upon something that doesn't change. The finished and complete work of Christ. This is a passage that we'll talk several times and then it'll be expanded throughout Paul's letter using the phrase the righteousness of God. You can see how the series of messages are developing. We began with the call of God. Today, we're reminding ourselves it is a call to the gospel, which is a lifelong uh, journey and pursuit in the gospel of grace. And it is a call to the righteousness. But in this case, we need to understand it is a call to embrace by faith the righteousness of God which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is so important to understand. You see, it is not by works of our righteousness by which we are saved. Only the righteousness of another, a perfect man at that, the God-man Jesus Christ. And we'll have more to say about that as we go along. I want to spend some moments this morning uh, putting uh, the eyeglass or the magnifying glass a little bit on this gospel of God, our theme for this morning. And I'll do this by simply making 
a statement or two under some of those verses that we've already read. And since we've already expounded a few of those, I won't have to repeat very much just to give you the total picture. You examine the gospel, the only one and true gospel of God in the scriptures. And then in particular, in these opening verses, some things become very clear. You can actually begin to make a list of truths about this gospel, which is the power of God for our salvation when we first believe in our salvation every day of our lives. For example, verse one, it is called the gospel of God. We can say then that the author of this good news, you know, by now, don't you, that the word gospel literally means the good news that God himself is the author of this good news. Someone as great in church history as Paul reminds us in these verses that this is not a message that originated with him or with any of the other apostles. This was revealed to him by God himself. The gospel author is God. That has any number of implications, which perhaps we'll look at in different ways over time. The other thing I want you to see about this glorious gospel is that really it comes to us in the form of a promise, a promise. And what makes it good news in this case is it's not a promise that I make to God. It's not a promise that you make to someone else. The promise of the gospel or the gospel promise is just like the author of the gospel. God is the author of this good news and he has given it to us in the form of a promise. The word covenant runs throughout all of the Old Testament experience. And that's why the apostle says in verse two, God has promised. God made a promise concerning this gospel. He made it beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. God has spoken in times past and has given to us the good news of redemption and forgiveness through the righteousness and the work of his one and only son. And he does this saying, I promise you, this is the way. This is, in fact, the only way to eternal life and to a reconciled relationship to God. But having believed, how precious does it become? When you and I give testimony to others, this would be refreshingly new, perhaps. We want to give testimony to others about what God has done in our lives. Maybe you need to start the conversation someday and say to someone that you've been seeking to witness to, you know, God has made me a promise. And let them know the reason for the hope that is within you. Because real hope, when it's in God and when it's rooted in his character, and he's even written it down, Paul says, in the Holy Scriptures, this is a promise that you can count on. This is a promise that cannot fail. Heaven and earth may pass away. For a few moments this 
dark past week, you wondered what's happening. Earthquake just struck too this week. Big one. China. Hundreds dead. Though the heavens and the earth pass away, still what? The word of the Lord, all the promises of God are more than rock solid. They are rooted in the ever living person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that emphasizes what we see there concerning the gospel in verse three. Very quickly now, the gospel person. Once again, it isn't about us. Surprise. And thankfully, it's about God. And in this case, in verse three, it is the gospel person. All of this has been written in the Old Testament, foreshadowed there, come to pass, Paul says, as a promise from God. And it is rooted and grounded in the person of God, in the person of his own son. That's why verse three, after giving us all that good news, gives us the phrase concerning his son. It's all about his gospel and our great salvation. Verse 4 reminds us of the truth as if we needed it. Well, we do. And while we trust in God's promises by faith, is it not wonderful that we have a gospel proof? The authenticity that this is a message which can bring life out of death, life after death. This gospel proof, it says in verse 4, is revealed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself from the dead. That's why, as we came together to worship just weeks ago, and especially emphasized the fact that after three days in the tomb, Christ triumphantly rose from the dead. It's sealing the deal, if I could put it indelicately. It's telling us that we have proof that God is to be trusted our very lives and souls may be placed in his hands. In verse 5, we learn what is the place of our responsibility in all this. I call it the gospel response. Look at verse 5 again. Through whom we have received grace to bring about, here's an interesting phrase, don't you think? The obedience of faith. Now, this is not some leap in the dark as the secular Philosophers have spoken about through the ages. This is a, a faith which acts the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles who believe for his name's sake. Sometimes we forget that the gospel good news. Let me give it in another nutshell form, because the scripture does that all over the Bible. What if I say to you this familiar phrase of scripture? Believe. On the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be what? Say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what we've kind of emptied out what is really intended in that phrase? In the original Greek of the New Testament, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is a command. Invitation is wonderful. The Bible emphasizes that, certainly. Whosoever will may come. But coming involves obedience to the imperative in the Greek, the command that we are to believe. That's the responsibility of the sinner. 
The obedience, the gospel response is an obedient faith. We actually come to him. I'll not take more time with verse six just to give you the point under that, that there is indeed a gospel call. I began the message this way and reviewed a little bit of last week's. We'll move on to verse seven. I love verse seven because it outlines the gospel blessings. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And some believers who believe, sadly, don't go beyond that. You've heard the old gospel song. It's still good counsel. Count your blessings. Name them what? One by one. It'll surprise you what the Lord not only has done, but what he's doing. His grace comes to us, Peter says, in a manifold way, a highly varied way. It it comes to us in every single circumstance of life, whether it be something we would call good or bad. Grace comes in myriads ways. That's the gospel working its way out in our life. But I've picked up on Paul's specific phrases there, these gospel blessings. He calls us the beloved, the beloved of God. That would be enough that he would love me. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Former pastor of this church, Lanny Pinwell, a while back, sent me a little note and he turned that around a little bit. And it was full of theological insights, such as Paul teaches. He says, how about this, Jim? Jesus knows me. This I love. And Paul emphasizes that quite a bit here in the text. He knows me. He has called me to his gospel out of darkness into light. Folks, do you understand that your new birth, your new life, the fact that you are redeemed, the fact that you are a believer in Christ unto salvation? Do you understand that is no less? In fact, it's more, but it is certainly no less than the miracle that occurred on the day more than 2000 years ago. When Jesus stood with a weeping family who had lost their loved one, his name was Lazarus. And that was a gospel call. What do you mean, roll the stone away, Lord? He stinks by now. Roll the stone away. And just with a command, Lazarus, come Forth, And a dead man rises again and is restored to his family. Salvation for every believer is the same kind of miracle, perhaps an even greater one. We are known of God. We are the beloved of God. We have received the grace of God. And Paul underscores there as well what we have sticking to us. In a world of uncertain fears and trouble on every hand, we are the people who have the peace of God ruling in our hearts and minds. That's preaching the gospel to yourself. I want you to get it down. This word gospel is a much bigger word than maybe 
you have appreciated or I have appreciated in a long time. The gospel comes with a certain kind of debt. Nothing we can earn of this eternal life, but having received it, Paul refers to himself all the way down to verse 14. Paul refers to himself there, rejoices to call himself Paul the doulos in the Greek, the lowliest of slaves, a bond servant. He said, I have been saved, saved to tell others. I am eager, he says, to come and to preach the gospel to you. Verse 15, the gospel zeal. I'm not going to take time, but you can reread that verse again. But let's read together verse 16. We know it well. He says, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. It's for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When you put the Jew there as a category and you put the Greeks there as a category, I know you may be among my clan of blue blood Englishmen. I didn't have any control over that. Uh, but I'm among this Greek category because as God sees it, there's only two ethnic uh, groups. And really, in the end, there's really only one. For all are sinned and all have fallen short of God's glory and all need a savior. Whether they bow down to idols and worship wood or stone or whether they're a Pharisee like Paul and an intricate keeper of all the covenantal laws, both desperate need of redemption. The gospel confidence that made Paul so not only unashamed, but made him bold, we know to the point of what would eventually cost him literally his head on the Roman chopping block. All of the apostles, as far as we know, with the exception of John, sent into exile on the Isle of Patmos, every one of them a martyr and countless numbers of martyrs. Some are laying down their lives. Did you know this? There is more persecution taking place in this world, in our modern day, in places in this world, than there was in the first century when the church was first founded. All for the gospel and the glory of God. Not only not ashamed, but in fact made incredibly bold to proclaim this word to any and all. This is God's power exalting the gospel. This is God's mercy. In this gospel, I say again, is God's righteousness revealed, a righteousness not our own, but that of Christ Jesus. Perhaps one of the best ways this morning for me to underscore that important truth as we continue to make our journey is to share with you a testimony that's extra biblical. It's beyond the scriptures. We have such testimonies of Peter and of Paul and of all the other apostles and those who were touched and healed and gave their lives to the Lord. But I'd like to go outside the scriptures to an, an incredibly important time more recently in human history, that of the great Protestant Reformation. And I suppose uh, next to only a few others, Martin Luther stands as my patron saint, if I can put it that way, not a offend any Protestants here or Baptists or whatever. Maybe I'm a Baptist, so I can only offend myself with statements like that. I want to share with you a little bit of Luther's testimony because it touches 
on what we've looked at thus far in our study. I'm quoting him. I do not know what will become of me, he writes in his journal. It is in vain that I make promises to God. Sin is ever the strongest. And what he's saying there is every time he, prior to his conversion and understanding of the true gospel, he couldn't do enough and never did, no matter how much he did, get peace with God. Here's what he says. I used to make a list of my sins and I was always on the way to confession. It's, we're told that Martin Luther used to wear out his confessor's priest, that they took turns. They didn't have time to sit there in the box and listen to all of Luther's sins. Whatever penances were enjoined upon me, I performed religiously. In spite of it all, my conscience was always in a fever of doubt. The more I sought to help my poor stricken conscience, the worse it got. Luther had read this passage, the verses of Romans 1. But every time he read the words, which I've underscored this morning, that phrase, the righteousness of God, as much as he had read it hundreds of times, if not thousands, he assumed that Paul was speaking of that righteousness by which God himself is righteous, the righteousness that belongs to the character of God. Well, he was right about that. But poor Luther, for these years of soul struggle, while he understood the reference to the righteousness of God was, in fact, the righteousness as righteous as the righteousness of God was something he had to attain to or he would never know peace. Still imbued during that time with a childlike reverence for what he supposed was the real Rome behind all the corruption he saw still laboring under a delusion concerning the necessity of acquiring righteousness by works, Luther looked forward to the joy of visiting every shrine in Rome to perform all the holy practices required. He therefore rejoiced in obtaining an indulgence from the Pope. Seven years for each step, by climbing what was called Pilate's Staircase. Uh, this famous relic, he was told, had been miraculously transported from Jerusalem to Rome by the angels. So he goes off to Rome. Eagerly, he climbed each step on his knees, happy at first at the thought of knocking all those years off of purgatory. As Martin, with cramped, bleeding knees and weary muscles, finally reached the top of the 38 steps, a voice seemed to say to him, you ready? Romans 1.17, the just shall live by works. Oh, I'm so glad I got a few people still awake. The just shall live by faith. It was the latter part of that text, Romans 1.17, the first part of which had so long perplexed and puzzled him because of the expression, the righteousness of God. 
Hitherto he had not paid very much attention to the last clause of the verse in his absorption of the first. The just shall live by faith. Amazed and abashed at his stupidity in supposing these works of his were of any value in the sight of God. Listen, by the grace of God, he came away from Pilate's staircase, bloody knees and all, pondering the meaning of that powerful sentence. The just shall live by faith. As he read the text again and again, and on this particular occasion, and we know how this happened and only by the Spirit of God, it suddenly dawned on him that the righteousness of God spoken of here by the Apostle Paul is not, is not, is not that righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but is a revelation of the righteousness that God is making available to us. It is a righteousness granted to us, not according to our works, our obedience or any imagined merit, but a righteousness that is given to us as a gift, a gift, faith itself. And Luther says that when he understood this, it seemed, he writes, the very doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. He knew, as we can know, that God alone gives us, gives us the righteousness that enables us to withstand his judgment because Christ himself bears that judgment and in the great exchange of Calvary, imputes to us his own perfect righteousness. Is that your ground? Is that your bottom line? I, too, am eager to preach the gospel of God to you. And I can't see your heart. I don't know the thoughts of your mind. I don't know what your journey has been. I cannot. But God sees the heart. I can only ask the question. In what are you trusting? What is the ground and the basis for your coming to God and even praying another prayer? How do you come to him who knows your sins and that they are many? And that we are hell-bent for destruction unless we come to him covered, clothed, head to toe, in a seamless perfection and righteousness that belongs to Christ alone. There's nothing for you to clean up. You can't do it anyway. You can only come bearing your sins to Christ, unloading them as he nails them to his cross in his own body. And you put on the dress of his perfect righteousness. This seems to be a Sunday morning, though my time is about gone, but eternity's longer. So I'll take another moment to ask whether or not you have ever individually, personally come. Have you come to God claiming nothing other than the righteousness of Christ? That's why we get to call him Savior. It is by his righteousness and our faith, our trust in that righteousness.